0: In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, the best of the serious and the curious from across this week's coverage. I'm Lane Green, The Economist's language columnist, and coming up The World Wide Web Has Turned 30. What does its future hold? The comedian Ricky Gervais on why no subject should be off limits to humor and how sharing food could help international diplomacy. But we begin with our cover story. Britain's political crisis has reached new depths. Last week, Parliament decisively rejected Prime Minister Theresa May's proposed deal for a second time. Both main parties are splintering. A delay to Brexit looks likely. Our cover leader argued that this chaos is a chance to come up with something better.
1: The immediate consequence of the rebellion in Westminster is that Brexit must be delayed. As we went to press, Parliament was to vote for an extension of the March 29th deadline. For its own sake, the EU should agree. A no-deal Brexit would hurt Britain grievously, but it would also hurt the EU and Ireland as grievously as Britain.
0: If Britain gets an extension, the question will be how best to use it.
1: An increasingly popular answer is get rid of Mrs May. The Prime Minister's deal has flopped and her authority is shot. A growing number of Tories believe that a new leader with a new mandate could break the logjam. Yet there is a high risk that Conservative Party members would install a replacement who takes the country towards an ultra-hard Brexit. What's more, replacing Mrs May would do little to solve the riddle of how to put together a deal.
0: A general election wouldn't solve things either.
1: The country is as divided as the parties. Britain could go through its fourth poll in as many years, only to end up where it started. Tory MPs might fall into line if they had been elected on a manifesto promising to enact the deal. But would the Conservatives really go into an election based on Mrs May's scheme, which has twice been given a drubbing by MPs, and was described this week even by one supportive Tory MP as the best turd that we have?
0: Our cover leader argued that there are two vital steps to breaking the impasse.
1: The first is to consult Parliament in a series of indicative votes that will reveal what form of Brexit can command a majority. The second is to call a referendum to make that choice legitimate. Today, every faction sticks to its red lines, claiming to be speaking for the people. Only this combination can put those arguments to rest. It is for the public to decide whether they are in favour of the new relationship with the EU, or whether, on reflection, they would rather stick with the one they already have.
0: But what form of Brexit might unite the factions across parties? For an in-depth discussion of the options left on the table, pick up a copy of this week's Economist. It's available on all good newsstands, or you can go to economist.com slash radio offer to get your first 12 issues for $12 or 12 pounds. The World Wide Web turned 30 last week. This system of storing, linking, and sharing information opened up the Internet to everyone, not just scientists. In a special episode, our Babbage podcast went back to the Web's origins and then ventured into its future. Peter Schwartz is a futurist employed by huge corporations, governments, and even Hollywood to predict the shape of things to come. He told us what he thinks the web of the future will be like. A lot of the way we access it will be through voice that is, is, will interact with information through voice, which is the most natural human interface. Within 30 years, obviously, we will have things that are the equivalent of what we think of as augmented reality today. So think about a contact lens in which info- all the information you want to see actually appears directly in your field of vision. So we won't have nearly as many screens. We won't have nearly as many physical devices that appear to be in our hands and on our bodies because all the necessary technology will actually be in the environment. So many Many social functions will be carried out uh, in that way. Work, education, politics, retail, all of those things will be essentially aspatial. And so I think about it 30 years from now as a global big brain. But in some parts of the world, that future will be constrained. Our new global current affairs show, The Intelligence, turned to Russia, where the government is proposing a new digital sovereignty bill it would allow the Kremlin to censor or even cut off the country's internet. We asked Arkadya Ostrovsky, our Russia editor, what can be done to keep Russia's internet free. Ultimately, it's all a domestic fight and the Russians, uh, Russian people themselves will fight for, uh, to
2: protect the internet because they, um, they rely on it so much. Now, the big global tech companies can do a lot to help as well to protect the freedom of the internet. Google has servers in Russia. Uh, Google is a big operator and a big provider. The internet, Facebook just made an announcement, a very important one that uh, it will not be storing data in the countries that abuse human rights. We should also recognize, however, that the Internet, and for now uh, the Internet remains largely free, offers a lot of prospects uh, and opportunities for the West to engage with the ordinary uh, Russian people, particularly the young ones. And the Internet at the moment still offers that opportunity, and that opportunity should be seized.
0: Freedom of speech is a human right, but where are its limits? Our latest guest on The Economist Asks was the award-winning comedian Ricky Gervais. He doesn't shy away from tackling taboos. His latest series, After Life, finds the funny side of addiction, illness, death and grief. He explained why he thinks no subject should be off-limits to comedy.
2: I can justify any joke I've ever made and I can tell them what the target is as opposed to what just the subject is. If everyone in the world thought the joke was offensive or didn't get it, then there's something wrong with the joke. But that's just not true. It shows the subjective nature of jokes and morality. So what I meant was, just because you're offended, it doesn't mean you're right. Some people are offended by equality. What are we
0: to do about that? Well, we're to ignore them. But comedy that challenges social norms can be seen as a threat. In this week's paper, one of our correspondents reported from northeastern China. He'd been enjoying a traditional form of comedy, notorious for being both fiendishly difficult to master and dangerously raunchy.
1: Aranjuan requires arduous training. It involves duets, typically between a man and a woman, that are often delivered in seven- or ten-character rhyming lines. A common routine is called the 18 touches – One variant of this involves a female performer cracking lewd jokes while stroking the genitals of her male counterpart with his trousers on. In 2004, Zhao Ben Shan, the godfather of Aranjuan and China's first billionaire comedian, said Aranjuan without smut was not Aranjuan
0: at all. Unfortunately, President Xi Jinping is no fan of lewd humor and has been trying to clean up the nation's tastes.
1: In 2014, in a speech on the role of the arts, Mr Xi said some artists were spewing out cultural garbage. He demanded that creative works serve the Communist Party and not provoke the ecstasy of the senses. It may be no coincidence that Mr Zhao has not appeared on national television's Chinese New Year gala since Mr Xi assumed power in 2012. Television stations only invite the cleanest Juan performers. A Changchun resident says this trend may explain why attendance at Juan theatres is falling.
0: The latest summit between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un did not go well. Both sides pointed to sticking points over sanctions. President Trump blamed the Democrats' investigations into his former lawyer Michael Cohen. But a piece in our science and tech section wondered whether something else entirely might have played a role.
1: Shrimp cocktail, grilled sirloin with pear kimchi and chocolate lava cake. Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un had the same food brought to them on individual plates during their summit on February 27th. Psychologists think a meal like this is a good first step towards improving relations. But new work suggests there might have been a more positive outcome with a different serving arrangement.
0: A new paper by Caitlin Woolley of Cornell University and Ayelet Fischbach of the University of Chicago suggests things might have gone better if Trump and Kim had shared family style from the same
1: plate. They recruited 100 pairs of participants from a local cafe, none of whom knew each other. In return for a $3 gift card and a chance to win $50 based upon their performance during a negotiation game, the participants were sat at a table and fed tortilla chips with salsa. Half the pairs were given their own basket of 20 grams of chips and a bowl of 25 grams of salsa, and half were given 40 grams of chips and 50 grams of salsa to share.
0: The success of their cooperation was measured by how many rounds it took to reach an agreement.
1: Those who shared food resolved the strike significantly faster in 8.7 rounds than those who did not 13.2 rounds. Mr. Trump and Mr. Kim might balk at having to take turns serving themselves from platters in the center of a table, but these results suggest that such an arrangement really could help world diplomacy.:
0: And finally, America has taken care to portray itself as an anti-imperial power founded on freedom. But a new book, reviewed in this week's issue, tells a different story. Daniel Immerwahr's How to Hide an Empire.
2: His focus is on the wider lands that have come under its control, the greater United States. At various times, this has included the Philippines, a colony from 1899 to 1946, and Puerto Rico, now a Commonwealth, as well as American Samoa, Guam, the U.S. Virgin Islands, northern Marianas, and myriad other territories around the world.
0: Today, technology has replaced territory as America's tool of choice for projecting power. But holding territory is not yet wholly irrelevant.
2: The superpower has roughly 800 overseas bases, compared with some 30 held by others in total. In Mr Imovar's vivid formulation, its empire is now a pointillist one. The United States did not abandon empire, but reshuffled its imperial portfolio, divesting itself of large colonies and investing in military bases, tiny specks of semi-sovereignty strewn around the globe.
0: And America's territorial empire casts a long shadow.
2: Deadly impacts of empire, according to Mr. Imavar, range from terrorism in retaliation against the presence of American bases to inadequate responses to disasters in places with second-class citizenship, such as the feeble reaction to the carnage wreaked by Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico in 2017.
0: We suggest his analysis might shed light on the rise of a rival empire, famous for learning from American experience.
2: Some observers will look at the Belt and Road Initiative and the occupation of islands in the South China Sea, and detect pointillism with Chinese characteristics.
0: That's the end of this week's Tasting Menu. But remember, you can read or listen to all of these stories and more in full at Economist.com or from Economist Radio on your podcast app. And while you're with us, please take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Lane Green, and in London, this is The Economist.